Well, again, welcome. My name is Derek. If I haven't met you, I would love to. Uh, if you would love to know more, if you would even like, if you would even be a little bit interested in, in wanting to know more about Hope, feel free to give me a call or an email. My email is on the back of that bulletin. I'd love to get together with you. Well, we are continuing in a series that we've been in this fall in the book of Daniel. Uh, if you're not familiar with Daniel, or honestly, if you're not familiar with the Bible, you've probably heard of some of these stories in Daniel. They are some of the most exciting stories in all of the Bible. Today, we're going to get to actually see a conversion story. And before I read, uh, I, I want to read you something um, from, from an author that's a satirical kind of look at how we understand who God is, because I want you to have this in the back of your mind as I read this passage, because God reveals himself really clearly in this passage. But, but let me read this to you, see if this rings any bells about how maybe you or the folks you know uh, understand God to be. This is uh, written by a guy named Greg Gilbert. He says, let me introduce you to God. You might want to lower your voice a little before we go in. He might be sleeping now. He's old, you know, and he doesn't really understand or like this newfangled modern world. His golden days, the one he talks about when you really get him going, you know, those were a long time ago before most of us were even born. That was back when people cared what he thought about things and considered him pretty important to their lives. Of course, all that's changed now, though, and God, poor fellow, he just never really adjusted very well. I mean, life's moved on and passed him by, and now he spends most of his time just kind of hanging out in the garden out back. I go there sometimes to see him, and there we tarry, walking and talking softly and tenderly among the roses. Anyway, a lot of people still like him, it seems, or at least he manages to keep his poll numbers pretty high. And you'd be surprised at how many people even drop by to visit and ask him for things once in a while. But of course, that's all right with him. He's here to help. Thank goodness, all the crankiness that you read about sometimes in his old books, you know, having the earth swallow people up or raining down fire on cities, that sort of thing, all that seems to have faded in his old age and now he's just a good-natured, low-maintenance friend who's really easy to talk to, especially since he almost never talks back. And when he does, it's usually to tell me through some slightly weird sign that what I want to do is fine, all right, regardless, by him. That really is the best kind of friend, isn't it? You know the best thing about him, though, is that he doesn't judge me, ever, for anything. Oh, sure, I know that deep down he wishes I'd be better, more loving, less selfish, all that, but, you know, he's realistic. He knows I'm human and nobody's perfect, and I'm totally sure he's fine with that. Besides, forgiving people is his job. It's what he does. After all, he's love, right? And I like to think of love as never judging, only forgiving. That's the God I know, and I wouldn't want to have him any other way. Okay, we can go in now. And don't worry, we don't have to stay long. Really, he's grateful for any time he can get. That satirical version rings just a little too true, I think, sometimes to the way that we think about who God is. Listen to how God describes himself in Daniel 4 and how different it is. Let me read to you now the whole of chapter Daniel 4. You can follow along on the screen. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It seemed good to me to show the signs and the wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, 
His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace, and I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. And then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make, it known, to me, make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, and I told him the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. And I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree. And lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me its interpretation, but you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. And then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered him and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. And so Belshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all under which beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. But because the king saw a watcher a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. And let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the king that you shall be driven from among men and that your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. 
and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity." All of this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, and at the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence, and for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken." The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and he ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as an eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and I honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, Praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all His works are right and His ways are just, and those who walk in pride, He is able to humble. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for Your Word and for this story of Nebuchadnezzar. We pray that You would work Your truth into our hearts this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me ask you, uh, what is your conversion story? What's your testimony? If I were to ask you to come up and stand up here this morning, what would you say to everybody? What would be the key points there or the highlights? What would be the things you most wanted to convey about your conversion? Maybe you're somewhere in the midst of that or you're not really sure where you are in that story this morning. Maybe your story's really clear and really clean and really easy to tell. Maybe your story's really complicated. Maybe you're not even sure what's going on in that story right now. You know, we get actually a conversion story from Nebuchadnezzar in that passage. That's why I wanted to read to you that whole long chapter is because it's really all a letter that he writes to all of the people of Babylon, his subjects, to tell them his testimony to tell them how he has come to know the one true God. And here's really what's at the heart of that testimony. 
is that Nebuchadnezzar wants his people to know this thing. God is big and I am small. That's at the heart of Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. When he says things like this, that God alone rules the kingdom of men, that he gives it to whom he wants, that he sets up kings and he tears them down, that all his works are right and just, and he humbles the proud. God is big. He is small. Friends, that's at the heart of our testimonies as well. That is at the heart, actually, of every Christian conversion story, the ability to say, God is big and I am small. And it's actually when we come to realize that, when we come to realize the bigness of God and the smallness of human beings, that we actually see that is what in bet- what's in between that is the incredible bigness of God's love and mercy given to us in Christ. So we're going to kind of explore that concept today, that God is big and we are small. And of course, just for you, Jason, I've broken it down into three easy categories. Because God is big and we are small, uh, it means that we have to kind of relocate our trust. Also means that we are reconsidering our conversion, or at least the nature of conversion. And that also we are reframing what grace really means. So those three things. Let's look at the first of them first, relocating our trust. Look again with me at verse 25. We're going to get really the heart of what uh, Nebuchadnezzar is saying here. Verse 25, we read Daniel saying this, that you shall be driven from among men, that your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, that you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and shall be wet with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time shall pass over you. And then here's the really important part. Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. The first thing that we need to consider, particularly with the context of what's going on with Daniel's discussion with Nebuchadnezzar, is that God is big and the people that we oftentimes think are going to be our saviors in this world are also very small, very weak, very frail. Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar are having a talk about politics. He's the king, and he's talking actually about what power the king has. And what Nebuchadnezzar actually proclaims when he finally understands this is that his power is actually so much smaller than he thought. This is very timely for us, of course. We're in the midst of an election year. It's coming up really soon, and it's really helpful for us to hear these words is that God alone is in charge. God alone is king. Friends, do you know that the same person will be in charge on November 4th as was in charge on November the 2nd? And his name is Jesus, and he has been sitting on his throne, and he will continue to sit on his throne and reign in righteousness and justice and peace until he brings all things to a good end. Now, I know that we say that. I know that most of us probably, if asked who's really in charge, that's probably the nice Sunday school answer that we would give ourselves and each other. But let me ask a little diagnostic, a little diagnostic question for you. How do you feel about the upcoming election. Are you anxious? How does it make you kind of feel about your future? 
How does it make you feel about the prosperity that may or may not be there that you want to see in your future and for your family and for your children? What kind of emotional attachment do you have to our upcoming presidential election or even local elections that are happening now? Because I think oftentimes the way that we answer that question can really reveal who it is we're actually trusting in. And you know, I think as as Americans, we have both an incredible privilege and also a pretty big temptation as far as this goes. Because here's the thing, we, we live in a place where we get to actually choose who we want to govern us. And, and that's really good. That's a real privilege. We live in a fabulous place, and the ability to actually go and vote and choose the people that we want governing us, that's a real privilege and a real blessing. So let me just say really plainly, you should vote. You should go and vote, but in the way that God's word calls you, in the way that his spirit calls you, you should go and vote for the people that you have been given the right to vote for. That's a good thing. But I do think that there is a subtle temptation in here for us. Because if you're the one who has the right to choose who governs you, boy, it can be a lot more tempting to think that it's me who sets up kings and tears them down. It's me who governs all things. It's me who gets to kind of really make all of the decisions. And once I've made that decision, that's the person I get to put all of my hope and trust in. They're the person that's going to rescue me from whatever dangers I see in the world. But friends, what Daniel is calling us to here, what God is calling us to in this passage, is to actually move our trust away from the human leaders that we see and to move them actually toward the king who is in charge of all things, toward the king who governs all things perfectly, to the one who holds the whole world in the palm of his hands. Which means that when you wake up on November 4th, instead of rejoicing or falling into despair, what if we woke up with curiosity? And our question was, I wonder what God's doing here. I wonder what God in his incredible sovereignty, I wonder what God in his majestic reign of all things, what is he doing here in my time and place with these things? And and wow, what kind of amazing things is he going to do in my heart because of it? There's the first piece, I think. When we see that God is big and we are small, it does change who we trust. Here's the second thing is that seeing when God is big and us as small also has us reconsidering the nature of conversion. Now, I love this story of Daniel 4, and I love it in a lot of ways because it actually is the culmination of the entirety of Daniel up until this point. In fact, you could, you could kind of read the first four chapters of Daniel as Nebuchadnezzar's story. We don't hear from him again after this chapter, but we see a lot of him in the first four chapters, and we see some pretty amazing things happening. We see God working in a pretty pretty incredible way with Nebuchadnezzar here. We see God actually chipping away at his heart in some amazing ways. We see Daniel, of course, you know, at the beginning in chapter one, showing up and not eating the king's food. And, and in not eating the king's food, uh, Nebuchadnezzar gets to see that, man, this guy who's acted totally different and resisted what I wanted, he's still just fine. So what's going on there? Uh, God is like slowly revealing himself to Nebuchadnezzar, isn't he? 
And then, of course, in chapter 2, uh, we, we see Nebuchadnezzar with this crazy dream, and none of his magicians, none of his people that he oftentimes trusts in can interpret the dream. They all kind of run scared. And only Daniel is there who can interpret the dream. And Daniel clearly displays that it's God who has given him this power to interpret the dream. And so we have a second time now that uh, God is really breaking into Nebuchadnezzar's life and revealing himself to him. And then, of course, in chapter 3, we read about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Nebuchadnezzar, who sets up this this huge statue to himself, and they, they decide not to worship it, so he throws them into the fire. And then a fourth man... The Lord himself appears to rescue them from the fire, and Nebuchadnezzar is once again faced with this question, who in the world is this God? And we see see God chipping away at him again. And then we have this second dream that Daniel interprets, and then finally at the end, in the middle of that passage, maybe you heard it really clear from Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, let me spell it out to you. You need to repent You need to fall down before the Lord and repent. You need to change your ways and turn to the Lord. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't quite get it, does he? It feels like he's getting, there's there's an introduction to who God is. And he turns for a little bit, but then he turns back. And he turns for a little bit again, but then he turns back until finally God has to humble him completely. I love this story because I think it displays so oftentimes the way that God deals with us. When we talk about conversion, sometimes we can get very focused on one very particular type of conversion. It's kind of the the alarm clock conversion, right? Where it works like an alarm clock. It goes off, you pop up, eyes are opened, everything changes. We read about that kind of conversion in Acts 9. That's the Apostle Paul. He's going one direction. Jesus shows up, smacks him in the face, and he turns around and goes the opposite direction. It's an immediate change. Some of you may have that story where you were going one direction in your life, and the next day, God completely redirected you and changed your heart and humbled you, and you cried out to him, and it's never changed since then. Hallelujah for that story. That's amazing. But actually, I think most of us have stories that look a little bit more like Nebuchadnezzar's. Rather than, uh, rather than an alarm clock kind of story, we have, it's more like a teenage alarm clock story, right? Where the alarm goes off, and then seven minutes later, the alarm goes off again, and then seven minutes later, the alarm goes off again until, you know, an hour and a half later, and you've heard every seven minutes that alarm sound. That's kind of what's happening with Nebuchadnezzar here. It's like God is saying, wake up, wake up, wake up wake up, wake up, and finally he wakes him up. Isn't it beautiful actually to see the perseverance of God with Nebuchadnezzar? Isn't it beautiful to see that God doesn't give up on him, that he continues to kind of break him down, that he continues to reveal himself to him, that he continues to say to Nebuchadnezzar, hey, I've already said it, but let me say it again. This is who I am. This is who I am. This is who I am. Friends, if you are in the middle of that, let me just encourage you, listen. Listen to God. Listen to what he is saying. Don't hit snooze. Turn and embrace the God who wants you to know him, who loves you more than anyone has loved you in your whole life, who has given himself for you. And if you are praying for someone like that, This is a great encouragement to us to 
to do really what Daniel did, to, to show up, to pray, to speak when given the chance, but to put all of your faith and trust in a God who has the power to rescue someone even like the greatest pagan king of the time. He can do that. All right, let's move to the third piece and really where we'll spend a little bit more time, although I'm not going to take too much of your time here, and it's reframing our understanding of God's grace. Reframing our understanding of grace. Let me recount just kind of the dream uh, that Nebuchadnezzar has one more time, because it really is kind of an amazing dream. He starts off by saying, you know, he was afraid of it, but the dream doesn't start off very scary at all. The dream starts with this big, beautiful tree, and, and it's tall, and it's wide, and its branches reach out far. I've got in my mind, you know, the, the treaty oak down in Landa Park, right there fed by the Comal Springs that just goes on forever. Or maybe you've been in the redwood forests in Northern California or seen the sequoias. Or maybe just kind of driven by and seen, you know, a vast pasture with that one huge, huge oak tree right in the middle of the pasture. That's the image that I have of this tree. And the leaves are beautiful and green and the birds have flocked there to find their homes and build their nests. And there's fruit on the tree that feeds those birds and animals come and they sit under the tree to find shade and they eat of the fruit. And we read at the end of it that really that this tree is providing fruit for everybody. Men, women, animals, birds. It is flourishing and it is producing and it is providing for all. And I hope that you have maybe seen something like that in your life. I hope you've maybe been able to look upon your business and said, wow, not only is this actually helping me, but look, I'm, I'm, I'm employing people who get to feed their families. I'm producing something good that's good for the world. I'm offering people a good product or service at a fair price. This is good. This looks like that tree that's flourishing. Or our home is the kind of place where my children get to be brought up and fed and cared for and nurtured well. They're protected and shaded. That kind of tree lives in my home. I hope you feel that way. And I think probably for most of us who would uh, confess to be Christians, we oftentimes feel like the best thing for us to say is, yes, and that's all been a gift. But you know, sometimes deep down, that just feels hard, doesn't it? It makes us mad sometimes to say that. To say, gift? Man, I worked for this. This is the sweat of my brow. This is what I have done for myself. Maybe that idea of it being a gift is even kind of offensive or repulsive to you. It was to Nebuchadnezzar. We read that Nebuchadnezzar woke up one morning and he walked up on his roof and his roof was probably different than your roof or mine. It was a flat roof where you could walk on. There was a balcony, probably even sleep up there at some point. And he lived, of course, in a palace. So we can guess that his view was probably pretty nice. And he walks out on his roof and he looks around at his kingdom and he looks around at the city of Babylon and he goes, <laughs> looks pretty good. Honestly, if you read history, it's hard to blame him. Babylon was pretty amazing. Uh, he had built for his wife, historians tell us, uh, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which were one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. 
like right up there with the Great Pyramid of Giza and, you know, the Colossus of Rhodes. It was one of the most amazing things anybody in the ancient world had ever seen. This tiered and terraced garden, really kind of right in the middle of a dry place, he had created this thing that looked like a big green mountain. It was so large, you could see it from across the city. And the city, like a lot of ancient cities, was a walled city for protection, Uh, but the walls were so big and thick and massive in Babylon that you could actually, they say two chariots could pass each other riding along the top of the city walls. Nebuchadnezzar was, was actually one of the great uh, builders and organizers of his time. I, I read that he had, he had uh, you know, either built or remodeled at least 13 cities, not homes, cities, including the capital, Babylon. And Babylon had beca- it w- it really was the cultural center of the world. If you lived in Babylon, it was not too far from the truth to say that you lived at the very center of all things. And so as Nebuchadnezzar looks out, and he looks at all that he has himself built, instead of saying, what a gift, he says, what an accomplishment. And the Lord at that very time does his best work. And here's what I want you to hear this morning, okay? If you don't hear anything else, hear this. The best work that was to come was also a gift, Because what God did to Nebuchadnezzar in removing all of that from him was the best gift that God could give him. We read that Nebuchadnezzar literally started acting like a cow. He walked out into a pasture somewhere. He started eating grass like a cow. He slept in the pasture. That's what it means that he was wet with the dew of heaven, meaning that he woke up in the morning and the dew was all over him and he was wet. So he slept outside. He couldn't really speak or think right. And he obviously, there was something going on where he thought he needed to eat grass all of the time. And we're not sure how long this time was. I don't exactly know what seven periods of time is, but it was long enough that his hair and his nails started to look, you know, not acceptable for human behavior. Could you imagine, you know, the tour guides of the time. Uh, here we have the beautiful city wall, you know, if you look to your, and then what's, who's that guy out there? And is he eating grass? What is he doing out in the field? It, but we don't really like to talk about that gets actually the king, but if you look over here at the beautiful hanging gardens, one of the seven wonders of the world, I mean, how awkward. The king out there who had completely lost his mind Could you imagine what it would have been to be one of his subjects? But what Nebuchadnezzar actually himself tells us is that it was the best gift that he could be given. That it was when God finally humbled him and brought him low that he was able to recognize the bigness of God, the smallness of himself. That it was not until then that he could see the grace of God appropriately. Let me just say, friends, if, if God has or is humbling you, that is his grace. It's not fun. It was not pleasant for Nebuchadnezzar. It was probably not pleasant for anybody around him. But it is the grace of God given to him that God took from him all that he was depending on so that he would recognize clearly who God is. If God is working that in your life, 
It is his goodness and it is his grace. And what he wants you to do is to cry out to him just the same way that Nebuchadnezzar did. This is the one who has the power to humble the proud. This is the one who is mighty and majestic. This is the one before whom I can do nothing but kneel. Let me close with this really quickly. Because I, I do think that there's one last thing that Nebuchadnezzar pictures for us. Not, not simply our own conversion stories, but he's really living out the story of Israel. He's living out the story of God's people. If you think back through the Old Testament, what you actually see is God's people acting a lot like Nebuchadnezzar. God would tell them, this is who I am. I'm going to come and reveal myself to you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. And you know what usually was the next move? A little bit of obedience for a little time, and then a movement away. They would drift over into idolatry. And God would reveal himself once again. Sometimes it was through a mighty sign. Sometimes it was through a prophet. And that prophet would say, come back. Come back to the Lord. And usually, they'd come back a little bit. They'd realize maybe they'd profess even God's glory for a short time. And then they'd just kind of fade right back away. And over and over and over, God would reveal himself to them. And it would kind of be like a teenage alarm clock. They would hit snooze. Until God finally said, okay, I guess the humbling has to begin. But here's the amazing part. <laughs> this is where the stories diverge. Because when the humbling began, it was God who humbled himself. God humbled himself so that his people might know him. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus, who was God himself, that God incarnate actually took on the form of mankind, that he humbled himself to take on our flesh, and that he humbled himself to take on our sin, and that he humbled himself even to take up our cross. Friends, we will never know the incredible grace of God, the lavish love and grace that he has spent on us, if we do not know his bigness and our smallness. And it's in knowing that, that we get to see His humility, His grace, His love and mercy given for us. I'd love to invite you to see that this morning. Let me pray for us now. Father in heaven, majestic and mighty, King of all things, ruler of all, sovereign over all creation, these are the words that we need to say because our hearts have a hard time believing them. So we ask, Lord, that you would show us your greatness, that you would show us the ways that we are often tempted to find that greatness in ourselves or in the people around us, that you would bring us low, that you would even humble us, maybe even in frightening ways that you might reveal to us your goodness and your grace, your mercy and love. We pray you would do that even today, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.